Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Do you want anything from France? No, I'm good. I mean, I'm going to be returning <laughs> to this like avocado-less, carless wasteland, dude. Yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be. I'm guessing that avocados will still be cheaper and more widely available in the United States than, than in, in France. France. Yeah. I mean, maybe we need to like do a little reporting on this. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. And I, I want to let you guys know, at, at the start, we want to record another uh, Ask the Weeds Anything episode in the near future. So in order for that to happen, you guys first need to ask us things. Um, if you want to send us an email at weeds at vox.com uh, or to us uh, personally, our addresses are on the internet, available. Um, find it. Send us your questions. We will answer them live on the air. For me or Matt or Jane or for all three of us or for some combination there. In. And if, if you have extremely specific college football questions for me, you should definitely ask those. The more specific, the better. We are definitely not getting those on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> no. Co- college football questions, I'm there for all Oh, my of gosh. Questions. Fine. Then I need all of your questions about Major League Baseball. Okay. Perfect. Ask the weeds anything. Sports. St- stick to sports. Yes. Um, <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Um, but then before we get to the show, I wanted Dara to to tell you guys all about about her life. <laughs> um, so those of you who follow me on social media or are members of the Weeds Facebook group are already aware of this. Uh, but just to let you guys know, uh, if as much as anything, because I'm about to go on vacation next week and I don't want people to be confused about what that means, I am leaving Vox.com as a matter of employment. I am going to be a reporter for ProPublica, which is a nonprofit investigative newsroom starting in July. Uh, however, I am going to be continuing as a co-host of The Weeds while working at ProPublica. So you're going to still be hearing me in your ears on Tuesdays. Uh, that is going to mean that I'm going to be off for a couple of weeks, back at Vox for a week, and then starting at ProPublica. But as far as you are concerned, the Weeds listener, uh, after I get back from vacation in France in the last week of June, I should be here on Tuesdays for the immediate future. So just so you know. Fantastic. Um, okay. So we wanted to talk today about tariffs, new tariffs on Mexico. But the tariffs on Mexico are about the border. And something. And, uh, and apparently we're, Mexico is going to, quote unquote, fix the immigration situation by what, like July 5th or something? By June 10th. Yeah, June by June 10th. 10th. My okay. God. So, no, right, right, right. Like, you can't so set up a good brunch by June 10th. No, well, <laughs> especially because like the president is in the UK and is right. then going to France. I am not going to overlap with the president in France, but like I fully anticipate that by the time I get back, you know, the last week of June, it's going to be this avocado-less, car-less wasteland. Yeah. 
so, guacamole will be sold for hundreds of dollars. All right. No, no, no. But, but okay. So here's here's what has actually happened. Um, you may recall a couple of months ago when Donald Trump was threatening to close the U.S.-Mexico border uh, that one of the things that he was kind of threatening in the mix there was a year from now, if Mexico had not, quote unquote, solved its, quote unquote, immigration problem, which, as we've discussed on the podcast fairly regularly, and therefore you are much more informed about it than the average bear, uh, refers mostly to people coming through Mexico from the Northern Triangle of Central America, largely to apply for asylum or otherwise, you know, kind of present themselves to Border Patrol agents in the U.S. So Trump said that if Mexico hadn't addressed that within a year, that he would consider border closures or tariffs. Donald Trump, surprising very few people, does not appear to be patient enough to adhere to his own timelines. And therefore, above the strenuous objections of many of his White House staffers and most of his economic advisors, Trump announced on Thursday that because people are continuing to come through Mexico to uh, to the United States, that he was going to impose a 5% tax on all goods coming from Mexico into the U.S. Uh, starting on June 10th, and that that would increase to a 10% tariff in July, 15% tariff in August, etc., until the problem had been substantially fixed. What that means is not entirely clear. It is generally we're we're in a situation well, I, right I now where like clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the like the punishments are very clear and the kind of way out of this is much less so. Yeah, it's it's not that it's unclear. It's that it is deliberately unspecified, right? So I went on a conference call uh, with Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, acting Secretary of Homeland Security, I guess, and the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. And this was the main question that reporters had for them Thursday night was, what does success look like for you? What does Mexico have to do for you to take these tariffs off? And they wouldn't say, and and I, I will be frank, they weren't being evasive in their answers, right? Like they were clearly articulating that their strategy was to not put out a public demarcation of what it is exactly Mexico had to do. They said that they wanted immediate action rather than promises of future action. And they said that they were confident that it was within the capacity of Mexico to do a lot of things that they thought were good. But they would not say. They had this very detailed timetable, right? So like July 1st, it automatically goes up to 10%. August 1st, it automatically goes up to 15% unless they cancel it. But then like what will you cancel it on? They made no effort to sort of – because one way you could think about this bargaining, right, is you want to do a credible commitment strategy. You say, look, unless Mexico can do X, Y, and Z by September 1st, the tariff is going to go up to 20%. And then the pitch to Mexico is we're going to look like huge idiots if we don't deliver on this threat, right? We just made a really big deal about it. We were incredibly clear. So this is definitely going to happen unless you do what we want. Um, and they really did not opt for that strategy, right? They opted for the opposite strategy in which this making a big deal about this. Uh, a lot of people in the business community are not happy. A lot of people in Mexico are not happy. But conceivably, Trump could call the whole thing off in exchange for something very, very minor, 
Right. right. And I, and there still is hope that, like, despite the fact that Trump himself is traveling this week, uh, Mexican officials, including the foreign minister of Mexico, are in D.C. in an effort to, you know, what they were initially phrasing as an act of persuasion. Sure. They were like, this isn't a negotiation. We're not, you know, we're just trying to remind the U.S. that our shared interest is in this not happening. Now they're saying, yeah, we think we can make a deal. So it's not totally clear what exactly the status of these discussions is. The stance of the Mexican government, at least publicly right now, is very confident that they can avert this looming disaster. And that's because, I mean, I feel like so Trump really likes optionality in these kinds of mm-hmm. situations, right? Like this is like his strategy is, you know, I mean, well, I don't know. Jane, Jane likes college football, right? It's I like do. It's like one of these, these like weird gimmick plays where – I, I believe you're, that is the, the option is not a weird gimmick, to be clear. Well, but an, anyway, go, go <laughs> on with your explanation of a legitimate form of offensive play calling. We're just like Trump. It is, in fairness, much more gimmicky in pro football, which is Matt's pr- primary frame of reference. Fair enough. At any rate, one way this could end, right, is that there's a 25 percent income uh, import tariff on goods coming in from Mexico. And then Trump could say that's good because there's a constituency that thinks NAFTA is bad. Trump promised to bring jobs back, blah, 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 blah. Uh, another universe is that Mexico makes some kind of smallish changes, but like sends some extra guys to the border with Guatemala, makes some more arrests. The volume of, of people coming through sort of goes down in part for seasonal reasons. Trump takes the tariffs off. The business community claps. Trump looks tough. Right. So like there's all kinds of different things that could go on here. And Trump is deliberately not making it clear whether he thinks putting tariffs on Mexico is good and therefore that he really wants to go through with it unless the Mexicans make huge concessions to him or if he agrees with the sort of business community conventional wisdom that putting tariffs on Mexico is bad and it's a bargaining chip that he is just like eager to trade away in exchange for some kind of concessions. And he's also being pretty unclear as to like what sustainable victory on this score is. Mick Mulvaney at various times during the call seemed to indicate that he's trying to increase pressure on congressional Democrats to say that like, look, like if Democrats think this is so bad, then they should make our concessions on on the border. And frankly, I mean, politicians don't normally do this because it's a bad way to achieve a specific goal, right? Like if there is something you want to do in politics, it's usually in your interests to like be clear as to what that is so that your allies can help you. Um, But Trump, I don't know, Trump doesn't like that. Like Trump, Trump likes the win. Right. And the easiest way to come away from something with a win is to be very unclear as to what it is you were trying to accomplish, because then whatever happens in the end, like you can you can go say it's a win. And so to to me, at least, like that's why these policies are so, so hazy. Uh, But clearly, at some level, he would like Central Americans to stop trying to come to the United States. And I don't see any universe in which this policy achieves that goal. So. I'm not as sure that this is a deliberate vagueness in so, as as much as it is kind of a genuine differences of opinion among various players in the White House and possibly with Trump himself not knowing what he wants. Like, 
I think we have substantial evidence that everybody in the Trump White House but Trump and like certain other people, you know, a few other people who are not primarily economic advisors thinks that tariffs are a very bad idea. Right. right. Yes. His economic team doesn't like this. The trade wars are good and easy to win. And so, you know, I think that there are definitely that part of the reason we're not seeing a really coherent, strong messaging strategy coming out of the White House is that what Donald Trump might like to say about this and what, you know, say Mick Mulvaney might like to say about this are different things. I think the other thing is that Donald Trump is is very upset about the number of people coming in. That is absolutely that is what upsets him. Trump administration's theory of the case has always been if we do a few things to crack down on people once they've entered the U.S., if we, for example, uh, make it so that unaccompanied Central American children can be sent back to their countries of origin without court hearings, which is currently what you can do for Mexican children, but Central American children are automatically entitled to a court hearing, which means they'll stay in the U.S. for at least a few years. If we can detain families for longer so that we can make sure that they don't, you know, abscond into the U.S. so that we can get through their court cases more quickly. Uh, And if we can make it so that fewer of them are passing screening interviews to begin with, then with those, the combination of those three things, we'll send back some families, the message will get around the Northern Triangle that it's not as easy to come to the U.S. anymore, and the numbers will decrease. That's a bank shot strategy, and it's not, there's some evidence that crackdowns over the last few years have led to immediate dips or, you know, pretty rapid dips, but it's not 100% a sure thing. It's mostly just that, like, that's the the way to get most quickly to the number of people declining, because otherwise you're stuck in these, like, long-term strategies of development and other things where you're not immediately going to see the numbers going down. The alternative strategy, of course, is use Mexico to make sure that people don't get to the U.S. in the first place, which is what was done in 2014, uh, has kind of been the preferred strategy pre-Trump. Trump makes this a little bit harder because, of course, he's not always, you know, his his tack on Mexico is alternatively that they're trying to undermine the U.S. and that they're the best partner that the U.S. has in this regard. But like, you know, the administration has been saying that there are a few specific things that Mexican officials can do to like contain people once they're right after they've crossed into Mexico, because just geographically speaking, like the Guatemala-Mexico border is kind of an isthmus, whereas the Mexico-U.S. border is this very long and unpatrollable thing. And so Spatially, at least, they're saying that it would be easier for Mexico to do these things than it would be just to rely on the U.S. to do them once they get here. That explains the congressional Democrat angle in all of this, right? What Mulvaney is saying is the things that we think are rapidly going to fix this aren't necessarily things that aren't things that we can do on our own. They're things that we need Congress to pass a law for. So we're going to make this happen. But the reason that this is happening, I think, policy-wise, not just in terms of this weird strategy where they're trying to get congressional Democrats to pass a bill by threatening trade war with Mexico, policy-wise, the other thing they want out of Mexico, and this is kind of the holy grail uh, and something that Mexico has said that they really don't want to do, is a safe third country agreement, which we've talked about on the podcast before, but which basically says two countries sign a deal saying 
we agree that either of us is a perfectly reasonable place for somebody to seek asylum if they're persecuted. So if somebody sets foot in country A and then crosses into country B and seeks asylum in country B, they're going to get sent back to country A and vice versa. So this is what the U.S. has with Canada. The U.S. really thinks that Mexico is a safe third country. Mexico uh, is not willing to accept the responsibility that comes with being a safe third country that abuts a bunch of countries that where like, one percent of the population is leaving this year. Um, and so is has said very clearly that that's the one bright line that they have consistently drawn in all of their migration conversations with the U.S. But that's the one thing that Mexico could give the U.S. immediately that would definitely make it easier for the U.S. to start turning people back on mass and would be wouldn't be a kind of credible commitment thing. It would be a we're going to sign this deal right now. Thinking about these tariffs, because I think that the way that tariffs are often described makes doesn't make it clear how much tariffs are impactful on the consumers of the country that puts the tariffs on the other country. Mm-hmm. We are not that you know this would not be a tax that would be felt by Mexican citizens. It is a well, hyper- well, I mean, the thing to remember about Mexico US trade relations in particular is that a lot of this is car manufacturing and that means that between like the raw product and the final product you have several different border pass-throughs. So it's it's hurting the consumer markets of both countries right. because anybody buying a car in either country is going to have this ridiculously compounded tariff at the end of it. Right. So my question would be, would these tariffs be enough to make Mexico rethink becoming a safe third country? Because, as you said, Trump has not been clear about what the goal of this would be. He did like has he you know, it's not been exactly clear as to like, you know, I, I was at a wedding over this weekend. Uh-huh. So admittedly, I was not keeping my ear to the ground on the movements of this particular policy change. I regret that. But would this make the move that Trump would then say? Aha, I have won. I got the strong impression that the professionals do not believe that this will induce Mexico to sign a safe third party agreement. That is something that they would like. Yeah. But that like they are not going to hold out for that. It's I don't think they know. It's ultimately not their call, like what Trump will settle with. But it it seemed like the professional opinion of pro-immigration hawks was that it would not be reasonable to try to hold out for that safe right. third country agreement, even though it's what they would like. Because by the same token by which the Trump administration isn't dictating the conditions of a win because it wants to be able to claim a win, they know that it's much harder for the Mexican government to admit that they clawed back on the one thing that they've been promising they won't do. Right. Now, one thing that I, I think is worth talking about is like what is the the economics of this exactly because you get a lot of uh, loose talk about higher prices for American consumers um, and I don't – you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But I would not expect to see a ton of that in the short term on this basis uh, because one thing that you've seen happen is that the value of the Mexican peso has fallen by about 5 percent um, since this announcement came out. Which, you know, offsets it, right? So there's a tax now on goods from Mexico, but goods from Mexico are cheaper at their source, right? So what you then heard 
is actually Americans, not Americans who buy things from Mexico, but Americans who sell things to Mexico uh, because now Mexican consumers don't have any money uh, with which to buy those American exports. But then there's like the, the, the questions get bigger and bigger, right, which is that fundamentally what NAFTA did, right, was NAFTA said to American manufacturing concerns, trade with Mexico will be seamless, right? That Mexico is conveniently located to the United States for doing some trade with. And it's not a coincidence that the factories, the maquiladoras, they're all in northern Mexico, right? I mean, it's it's not just that like they're popping up at random and the goods are coming in tax-free. It was like, what can we do that is as close to having a factory in Arizona as possible, but at Mexican wages, right? Right, and, and so like that trade has continued to grow even under Trump. Like until this March, the like largest port, like by import export volume in the U.S. was the air terminal at LAX. Right. It's now Nuevo Laredo, which is like that's that is almost exclusively U.S. Mexico trade. Right. It's like ninety seven percent going through the biggest port right. now. And so the and the harm to so the the harm to the Mexican economy of this would be a sense that U.S. Mexico cross border trade is not reliable enough to build a supply chain around. That it's like if you want something specifically Mexican, like some avocados, then like fine, you buy it, you pay what it costs. If the price goes up because of tariffs, you sell less. But that that's like um, classical trade, right? But the like new hyper-globalization trade is about the idea that you buy things from foreign countries not because you have some like special yearning for foreign commodities, but because it makes good business sense to construct an elaborate multinational supply chain. And so that's why like a lot of the North American auto industry for a long time has been centered, some of it in Detroit, but some of it in the parts of Ontario that are right by Detroit. And so we've built a, now a lot of supply chain in northern Mexico. And that's not going to like evaporate in June because Donald Trump says there should be a tariff, but it could be blown up, right? If people who make investments get the idea that like this is unstable and untrustworthy, that investment will dry up and it's going to be very harmful to, to Mexico. So they are under the gun, right? But at the same time, like American business owners, they, they like this arrangement. And ultimately, the existence of that arrangement makes cars more affordable, right? So there's a difference between in the short term, like, is your car going to get 5% more expensive? I'm sort of skeptical. But like in the long run, will we get it? You know, maybe. Um, definitely in the short run, going on vacation in Mexico will become cheaper. So if you're, you know, interested in some tourist activities, I would I would definitely suggest that. I know that this is not a Vox Media pod podcast network podcast worldly, but I do think we should talk a little bit about this from the Mexican side. So why don't we take a break and then do that? Yes, let's do it. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I think the other thing to, you know, obviously like the U.S. is not the only actor that has some agency here, right? Like Mexico does have officials here in D.C., uh, trying to negotiate. They're like, the other thing I would say about Safe Third Country, by the way, Jane, is mm-hmm. that they did not bring any actual migration officials to these talks yeah. uh, because they're they're trying to put up the stance that migration policy isn't on the table. Uh, in practice, we have certainly seen that the foreign minister, Ebrard, has been willing to, has kind of seen migration as an annex of U.S.-Mexico policy. And there's the vibe that they will commit to things that their migration officials are then like, how in hell are we supposed to implement this? That's what has happened with the Remain in Mexico policy, for example. But like, they are also dealing with the fact that the USMCA trade deal just got sent to the Mexican Senate on Thursday, like literally the same day that Donald Trump then decided proceeded to do these tariff announcements. So the Senate has not yet ratified the trade deal. Uh, when the Mexican president sent it to the Mexican Senate, he said that he expected it to be ratified soon. Uh, but like there are obvious domestic Mexican politics questions about whether it's a very good look. Like on the one hand, OK, you maybe you need a trade deal because otherwise you're going to get a trade war. On the other hand, why are you making a trade deal with somebody who, A, just you know, like was putting tariffs on your steel and aluminum industries last year and B is now putting a tariff on all of your goods. So there's that concern. There's also just kind of the general what is the relationship that Mexico has with the United States? Because the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, came into office as, you know, mostly not talking about Trump, like mostly the reason that he was enthusiastically embraced by the populace was because of his kind of left populism, but definitely like rhetorically seeming like the kind of guy who would stand up to Trump, who would reject the neoliberal consensus that like whatever is good for the U.S. is good for Mexico because it's good for business, you know, who would be who would be a little bit unafraid to ruffle some feathers on behalf of the Mexican people. And 
Instead, what you've seen is some of the folks in his cabinet, like Ebrard, being very, very solicitous of maintaining a good relationship with the U.S., not necessarily like bending over backwards, but like trying to retain strong trade relations in particular. You have folks in the who are actually like running migration policy, for example, like the interior secretary, who are very committed in theory to human rights and who are a little bit frustrated with having to buckle under to the United States, even though they're also dealing with domestic migration politics, because there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of kind of local and state officials who are complaining about having to take care of all of these migrants and who are trying to, you know, make it the federal government's problem or make it somebody else's problem. Um, And then you have AMLO, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, president, who's like just kind of wafting above it all, like the letter he sent to Trump in like after Trump issued the tariffs was this fairly windy, like appealing to Lincoln and FDR. Like it was not exactly a if you hit us, we will hit you back 10 times harder kind of thing. It was a I am sure that you understand that we in Mexico appreciate human rights. And it was just it was not it was neither showing a lot of muscle, nor was it kind of appealing to economic shared interest. It was the sort of like fancy diplomatic letter you send before your dude comes in to actually do the trade negotiations, which is the role that Ebrard's currently playing. But like there is a very good possibility that while trade and migration have not been primary issues domestically in Mexican politics for the first six months of the AMLO administration, because like there is a lot of concern about infrastructure. There is a lot of concern about what's happening to the civil service. Um, that the fact that Trump has now put this like massive thing in the middle of U.S.-Mexico relations might increase the salience of the U.S.-Mexico relationship domestically in Mexican politics. And if that happens, the political pressure will be for AMLO to stand up to Trump more, right? It'll be to, like, not necessarily do the U.S.'s bidding in in approving USMCA. It'll be to reduce the amount of cooperation that Mexico is currently giving to the U.S. on migration stuff. So it's not at all clear that on the bell curve of how much cooperation Mexico could have with the U.S. on issues of migration in particular, that the Mexican government isn't currently toward the like cooperative side of the bell curve and that adding an additional like news event that could create political pressures won't blow it back toward the less cooperative side. Right. I I think that there is the presumption of that kind of desire for neoliberal stasis that isn't really reflective of what opinion on the ground that helped get AMLO into office really was. Yes. Um, It it turns out that no one anywhere likes stasis. Um, But I'm interested to see, you know, if there isn't action by, as you said, June 10th, that the tariffs will increase. And it seems to me that the argument that this would bring Mexico to the table on specific issues, as you said, we don't know what the specific issues are, and we don't know if it would bring Mexico to the table. And it seems to be like, you know, I think tariffs are a a complex economic issue, and anyone who can argue either for or against their utility in the United States politically, you know, I, I think that that's a bit of a fool's errand. But this does seem to me to just be kind of like, if you were using the stick without the carrot, but you didn't really know what the stick was for. It strikes me that if you are a world leader, like a responsible, you know, and patriotic global official, you sort of can't 
give in to this kind of no. tariff-based extortion because Trump has done it in such a such a goofy way, right? So, but we didn't really talk about the the legal aspects of this um, in in detail. But no. there is a there is an established framework of trade war. Right, which is sort of known, and it's a little bit like um, I don't know. You think about like dueling in like an old timey show, right? Where there's like a code to it. It's serious, and people get hurt, but it's also understood to not be like a total blow up in your economic relationship, right? right. The Department of Commerce does a legal finding that there is a dumping of Korean washing machines that is undermining the Korean whatever in an unfair way, and so therefore retaliatory tariffs are coming on. And then the Koreans can take their complaint to the World Trade Organization. There's like a whole right. thing. The ritualization of it creates compartmentalization because exactly. it's just like a thing that is going on in the background while the two of you are talking about other things across the negotiating and table. And it's fine. What Trump did here was first he declared a state of emergency on the U.S.-Mexico border as an effort to get some – I even forget how it worked. But it was like some workaround for the wall funding. Right, right. And there were a couple of uh, pots of money that he could tap into or move around in case of national emergency. And this was class. very controversial in the American Congress. He lost some Republican votes in a sort of rebuke measure. Um, he 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 carried the day, right? But this was not. It's an unusual kind of national emergency when everybody in the opposition party says your emergency is fake and some of the people in your own party also agree that it's fake, right? Like emergency declarations happen all the time, but they're normally not controversial. It's like why – these powers do not exist to let you make partisan politics uh, power moves like that. Right. And usually they're also like – I am making the emergency declaration as a necessary step for doing this particular targeted thing. Right. Trump, on the other hand, was kind of like, I'm making the emergency declaration. I'm doing X, Y, and Z things that I can do now. But like kind of the important thing was also the emergency declaration. Right. Because then what happened here is that Stephen Miller seems to have been Googling around or something. And he found out that there is something called the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. Um this came from the 70s. It was an effort to actually restrict the former incredibly broadly worded Trading with the Enemy Act. Uh, but so this law allows the president to impose regulations that relate to international commerce and declared national emergencies. And if you look at the list of times it's been invoked, it is always, 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 always sanctions on foreign governments and individuals tied to that government. Like, all of the possible uses of it. Now, it doesn't say in the statute that that's the only thing you can do. But like IEPA is used to say we are going to freeze the assets of the government of wherever because they just did a coup. Or and these things tend to like go on and on. I mean – I'm subscribed to the White House press list and like every 90 days, you know, like you'll you'll occasionally just get these emails like continuation of the national emergency with respect to. Exactly. And so like there's been a lot uh, with regard to Iran and Venezuela lately, the like bad guy countries, right, that, that are out there. This is a totally wild uh, invocation of that power. It, it doesn't even vaguely resemble any of the other ones. But they said because there is an emergency at the border, they can use IEPA powers to regulate international 
commerce and therefore impose this broad across-the-board tariff on all Mexican goods. Um, and it sounds like the Chamber of Commerce is considering some, some legal strategies to try to shoot this down. And Senate Republicans are reportedly discussing having a vote. This is right. Well, because (laughs) no, but, you know, Trump's wall declaration was controversial among Republicans. So they're considering undoing it. But all this is to say, right, if you're Mexico, if you give in to Trump on this point, right, particularly if he comes away with a face saving compromise, then Senate Republicans definitely aren't going to rebuke him. And then this gun is going to be pointed to your head like forever. Right. And that's really chancy uh, because Democrats who will oppose Trump on this particular topic are obviously not going to take a principled long term opposition to like goofy uses of presidential power. Like all presidential powers, like there will be a new president. That president will like discretionary authority. All presidents have like some issues on the US Mexico bilateral agenda, right? So it would be very, I think, dangerous to Mexico to give in on this. And the political prospects of just winning this fight in the United States are not zero, right? Like, you can send a foreign minister here to talk to the Trump administration, but the foreign minister can also talk to Senate Republicans, right? Can also talk to American auto industry figures and, like, try to try to win this thing. Um, so it, it seems like a a dangerous sort of game to me. And it's also interesting. I mean, everything with Trump, I think, always winds up coming back to this. But it's like there are some provocative notions in Trumpism, but then there is never a like building of an ambitious policy, right? It's like Trump really feels strongly about this asylum situation. Legally speaking, the solution he wants to it is a safe third country agreement with Mexico. That is a big ask of Mexico, which does not want to shoulder these responsibilities. Is and there it's also a worth give? noting that, like, because the Trump administration uh, tends to go like aims first, means second, right. there are like a lot of things going on. There's a regulation that is being like drafted and circulated that would essentially like unilaterally assess that Mexico is a safe third country. They've been doing this migrant protection protocols remain in Mexico thing that is not safe third country, but has a similar outcome of like requiring people to stay in Mexico. So like these are it is theoretically possible that the Trump administration is in the room saying to Mexico, look, we're going to do this by hook or by crook. But like imagine if this is the – like imagine if there was like a summit, right? Like the AMLO-Trump summit and they go to Mar-a-Lago and they announce this like visionary deal, right? In which like big sums of American money are going to head to Mexico. Mexico is going to do the safe third country agreement. There's going to be like infrastructure projects to comprehensively upgrade yep. right, the U.S.-Mexico border. This is what everybody thought was going to happen when AMLO got into office because what AMLO really needed from the U.S. was like lots and lots of investment in southern Mexico. <laughs> right. And it's just like, I don't know, like they just don't seem to be working on it. Well, I yeah. mean, that again, I think that there's there's a version of Trump where that happens, yes. and that is not the one we're working with. It's like if we went to the holodeck, we could go to the other version of Trump in which he has an inv- like. This an is where we get the healthcare plan that takes care of everyone. Right, exactly. When you, I think it, you know, I, I've written about this before. This is obviously a much larger and more 
woodly issue, but like they're really, you know, Trumpism, the concept that there is a distinct li- like ideology with it, a, a real framework to what Donald Trump does is a fallacy because what Donald Trump does is that he says something and then people try to like backfill in the infrastructure for it while he, he while they're doing so, he's already wandered off to something else. And so I think that on this particular issue, that's even more challenging because we're aware like this is an important issue to him. We don't know how or what the ideal result would be or what that would you know what the policy what the underlying shaping policies that got him to this point are. And so I think that that makes this complicated because again we are working around a version of Donald Trump the one that exists that is not the one who would have a big conference or has like an ideological roadmap for how we would get from where we are now to where he wants us to be. I mean he doesn't have an ideological roadmap but like I don't know I've I think I feel like Matt has has changed my mind about what's going to happen next like three times over the course of this episode like <laughs> I do think I think one point that's worth, you know, you mentioned it in passing, Matt, but I I, I want to pull it out a little bit is that the Trump administration is saying that they're asking Mexico for things that are totally within Mexico's capacity to do. They're vague on what those things are short of safe third country. They're, a, they're not even saying safe third country. It's just something that like, you know, because we've talked we enough about a it on line the on asylum. Right. Is what they're saying. Right. Like we kind of you kind of understand what where that's pointing. But like the other things they're asking for, are like more interdictions, more crackdowns on organized crime networks that are operating routes like we don't have specifics there. But that's not necessarily because they don't have specifics. It could be because they play a lot of U.S.-Mexico cooperation on migration very close to the chest. And so it's totally possible that, like, there is a very detailed set of asks that got sent to the Mexican military and the, you know, and ENAMI, the Mexican Migration Agency. And, like, it's, you know, that, that kind of small face-saving compromise is going to happen because it's happening in a way that isn't going to look weedsy to, you know, like from a public facing perspective. But I think, Matt, you've like sufficiently persuaded me that that wouldn't necessarily be a good idea for Mexico because of the like gun to the head problem. So if you're Mexico and you know that Donald Trump likes summits because, A, there are lots of visual media opportunities. Right. B, there are big dates in the calendar. Like the thing about the June 10th date on the tariffs is that it led uh, – it's like created a guaranteed week of news coverage for Donald Trump because it's like will he or won't he on the tariffs. That might seem like a good way to kind of hash this all out, that this is – you know, you're going to be playing to the things that the president wants. He's going to get a lot of attention for like meeting with Mexico and like he'll probably say some, you know, l- less than complimentary things about Mexico in some kind of bilateral appearance and AMLO will like have a little bit of consternation about how to deal with it. But in terms of the policy asks you you can get out of that, maybe that's the thing that Mexico wants. Now, is that what the U.S. wants or does the U.S. just want to be able to continue pressuring Mexico as this, like, frankly, fairly rapidly evolving regional situation right. involving a migration crisis continues to evolve unclear. But like, yeah, maybe maybe the AMLO-Trump Mar-a-Lago border summit is the way is like the thing that Mexico could do to kind of get out of this eternal, you know, border pressure hell. That's what I would do. 
Yes, and the hypothetical Trump is all over it. <laughs> um, I would go, go on Fox News, though, or send somebody who who speaks fluent Fox, and uh, you know, like have them have them talk about the glorious deal. The yes, the Trump the Trump doctrine. Um, so I think we should take a break, and then we should move on to our white paper uh, to talk about private prisons. Yes. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, we have today, Do Private Prisons Affect Criminal Sentencing by Christian Dipple and Michael Poker. Poiker, I don't know how you say it. Um, I had thought that the smart thing to say about this was that people on the left talk too much about private prisons who do not really drive mass incarceration. But according to this paper, I mean, it's not that they drive mass incarceration, but they do increase it, that they look at um, sort of, uh, you know, county pairs that go across state lines and they look at when states uh, make rule changes that allow for more private prisons to come in. And they show that prison sentencing uh, goes up on the side of the state line that did it. This is the kind of study design people have been using for minimum wage type studies for a while. Uh, and they show that, yeah, um, people end up serving longer sentences. Sentences. Not that more people get sent to jail, but that the sentences become harsher uh, than you would expect based on the underlying data. 
Um, and they go through a few different ways you can look at this. They show no sort of racial skew or skew toward particular offenses. The effect isn't large. Uh, it's but so it's, small. It's like a doubling in private prison capacity leads to an increase of 23 days in felony sentences. Yes. Um, but it's like across the board, it just sort of gets harsher. And they say this is because private prisons do, in fact, save money, uh, as they promise. And so therefore... Um, People uh, use the savings to they they plow the savings back into additional public services, which N- namely imprisoning people. <laughs> yes, in those private prisons. But I mean, it's like if it wasn't prisons, right? You would just say this is a straightforward it works story, right? Like we privatized the bus company, and then we were able to make the buses run more frequently. Right. Hooray. But this is like we privatized the prisons, so then we could throw people in jail longer. Right. Like mm. literally, the way they put this in the paper is that. Uh, Prison privatization does not decrease the average cost of incarceration, but it does decrease the marginal cost, which is yes. to say it costs less to put a single person in prison. And But if you look at the overall spending, it does not change. I think that, you know, Matt, I think you're correct to put this in the framework of the debate about, like, in what ways do private prisons incre- increase or exacerbate mass incarceration? But, like, I want to be specific about the mechanisms because the authors make it very clear that this study is not intended to shed light on the primary mechanism that gets cited for yes. how private prisons increase mass incarceration. Because, like, the general talking point is, well, private prisons create you know, like are a lobby that can lobby state legislators to pass harsh state laws so that more people are put in prison for longer. The way that they do their data, and this isn't a deliberate, like, they they weren't trying to avoid that question. It's just that, like, the way they do their data to make sure that they're not, you know, getting misled by, like, changes in crime rates, for example, makes it impossible to look at the effects that changes in state laws have. Um, But so instead, what they're talking about is kind of this, like, marginal cost, this, like, you know, cost constraints thing, which is not as commonly cited as a reason that private prisons would increase mass incarceration, not least because, like, the left case against private prisons is that it is a perverse incentive, not that it's actually like, you know, it's it's not a it's not an argument of, oh, it's bad to incarcerate people more cheaply. It's an argument of it's bad to create actors in the system who are trying to preserve the system. So, like, whether or not this is evidence for the effects of private prisons on mass incarceration being like understated now by the new kind of smart consensus depends on what you were saying private prisons did to begin with. Um, I think the other thing that's kind of worth noting here is that they do pay, you know, in in identifying cost constraints as the mechanism, they're also saying this isn't just a question of judges who are elected in most states, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to Get the, pr- trying to win over the private prison industry for yeah, campaign that was the concern about judicial capture because right. I think there have been a couple of specific cases um, in which judges were like you know working with um, boot camp programs and like basically sending kids to those programs because those programs then sent the judges money. This is not what ha- is appearing to be happening here. This appears to be less about you know a implicit quid pro quo and more about. Cost savings, yes, and right. efficiency, but efficiently putting people. But it's not in right. Prison. It's not necessarily even a quid pro quo. It's like we know that there there is a very very extensive body of research on yeah. what like effects on judges' sentences, and it's kind of weird because like a, the extent to which 
sentences are even discretionary can be a little bit overstated by this literature because there's a very important factor, which is what crimes the judge is assessing a sentence for, which is determined by prosecutors and usually the result of plea deals. But everything from like whether the judge has had lunch already mm-hmm. to whether the judge's preferred baseball team won or something like that, like there's a lot of evidence that the way that judges decide how harshly to sentence someone is not totally an actuarial thing. So it kind of makes sense that this might exist in an imminent sort of way, right? Like judges where they when they know that mass that when they know that incarceration is cheaper, uh are more likely to be like, yeah, whatever, we'll tack some extra time onto this sentence. Whereas judges who are cons- who are aware that it's going to cost a lot of money to put this person in prison might be like, do I really need to make this a 75-day sentence instead right. of a 60-day sentence? Yeah, I mean, I think this, to me, you know, it, it, I've always had some questions about the, the kind of uh, coalition politics with the, the right on crime kind of folks and the sort of cost saving imperative that's driven some deincarceration interests um, in the conservative movement. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this doesn't show that that's bad exactly, but it's it's just a reminder that the cost saving impulse can go in a lot of different directions, right. right? Like most states, I think, have a significant room to engage in further privatization of their prison operations. And if you conducted those privatizations without increasing sentence length, it looks like you could save a fair amount of money, right? That like you actually could privatize prisons, keep sentences equally harsh, plow the savings into tax cuts rather than into longer prison sentences and deliver exactly the right-on-crime win that is being promised here, right, which is to generate extra fiscal capacity, right? Whereas if you are like a bleeding-heart liberal who is sad about people being imprisoned in harsh conditions for very long periods, like that looks like a really poor kind of deal to you, right? And it's always just, I mean, I don't know, politics is hard. You got to make coalitions. Right. You got to find issues where you find them. But it's, to, to me, serves as among other things, a reminder that like, to the extent that your objection to this scale and severity of prison sentencing in the United States is not genuinely fiscal in nature. Like you might want to make sure that you're not exclusively foregrounding fiscal arguments about this because there are a number of different right. – uh, th- there are ways to cut costs. I, I would also argue that uh, the right on crime strategy and kind of how um, Americans for Prosperity has parsed this out has also been part of why they focused a lot on uh, recidivism and as a also a cost-saving mechanism. But right. I, I would note that, you know, when uh, right on crime and a couple of other organizations talk about, you know, the successes they had in conservative states, a lot of that has had to do with – cost savings with the fact that public, you know, non-private prisons are more expensive. And so a lot of those prisons have closed. Ergo, they're saving money. But I think that that's a really worthwhile point. But I I would also say that I think the complexities of criminal justice reform cannot be reduced to any one metric. Namely, and I I think that the argument, you know, and we see this a lot when people talk about the war on drugs and like the war on drugs is expensive. And I'm like, well, yes, lots of things are expensive. But the, you know, the the problems with the war on drugs are the number one issue is not the expense of it. The number one issue with it is that it's, you know, blatantly a-constitutional. But I think that this is another issue and another case in which 
you know, you see how private prisons work. They right. save money. The issue is what are they working to do? Yeah, I mean, I definitely I think that the recidivism point is worthwhile, not least because there is ambivalent at best research that is summarized by the authors of this paper on the relationship between private prisons and recidivism. But also because, frankly, what that means is that the lowest hanging fruit on criminal justice reform stuff can often be spending money. Like the First Step Act, for example, which is like the lowest of all possible low hanging fruits. No offense to Jared Kushner. Uh what a lot of what it did was like provide for programming in the hopes of reducing recidivism later on. And like that is the kind of thing where if you're just thinking about fiscal responsibility in a narrow sense, it is unlikely that you would get Republicans to sign on to it. But one of the geniuses of the right on crime strategy has been to get people to think a little bit more broadly about, OK, what's you know, what's even more expensive than putting somebody in a public prison rather than a private prison, putting somebody in prison twice and getting them to be willing to spend a little bit money on some stuff rather than a lot more money down the road. Right, 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 right. I mean, like the objective that makes everybody happy ultimately is you have people not committing new crimes, then not getting arrested, not being reincarcerated. And it's like win, 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 win. You know, this paper just highlights that some of these areas pose different kinds of trade-offs, right? right? That like the prison privatization, uh, it it works, right? Like in a narrow sense, right? In the sense that you would claim for privatization in any other field of government activity. Like it saves you money and that doesn't need to just be like a miser's thing. Like you can can plow the savings uh, into more incarceration if you are an incarceration enthusiast, right? Um, Or— It it scales well. (laughs) Right. Or you can cut the prison budget without letting any people out of jail, right? right? It's like you have all these kinds of— options available to you by so optimizing fun, on the imprisonment. So much fun optimization. Right. And if you this and if you and if so you fun. if you shake your head at that like Jane, it's like the the case needs to be made on some other grounds that it's just like it's bad to have so many people in prison for so long. Fortunately, there's lots of ground to make that case on. Oh yeah. Never heard of it. (laughs) There is actually like I would the data set that they used here kind of is is worth calling out because they ended up getting 13 states to send them pretty detailed data sets of when and where uh, prisons opened and closed and whether they were public and private. And the years for which they have that data vary pretty substantially by state to state. And so they didn't get into this in the paper. But like I would definitely love to see a bunch of these are, you know, the states that they worked with are concentrated in the South and the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those Southern states are states that have passed criminal justice reform bills in the last decade. Mm-hmm. I would love to see whether this data can be used to talk a little bit about the effects of state laws in one direction or the other. Uh, and I think that in general, we really should be seeing the point when not just kind of the year-on-year crime trend stuff, but like more robust academic work is happening regarding the first wave of crime criminal justice reform, which is, you know, in a lot of states, like over 10 years old at this point. Indeed. All right. So, guys, uh, send us questions, uh, weeds at vox.com. We will aim to answer them or find us personally. Ask about, you know, really anything. Anything. Ask us anything. That is the name of the game. Um, enjoy vacation, Dara. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will return on Friday. <laughs>